Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Joining me on Becoming Educator are not one, but two outstanding guests, Sarah Cottingham and Catherine Morgan. Sarah is Associate Dean of Learning Design at Ambition Institute and is studying for an MA in Educational Neuroscience, which sounds unbelievably fascinating. Catherine is Expert Advisor at the Teacher Development Trust, Research Associate at the University of Gloucester, and is studying for an MA in Educational Leadership alongside previous guest, Neil Gobride. And today we tackle the wonderful topic that is deliberate practice. We discuss why it's needed in education. We discuss why we should focus on nurture and not nature. And I also ask both if deliberate practice is all about changing teacher habits. We then explore the differences between novice and expert teachers. And Catherine explains a little bit more about what she means when she mentions that she Frankensteins her classroom practice. We also explore Um, the difference between purposeful practice and deliberate practice. And then we dive deeper into deliberate practice and look at its five core principles. Push beyond, specific goals, focus, high quality feedback and mental models. We then discuss instructional coaching, which is getting a lot of attention attention right now. And then we close with um, both Sarah and Catherine offering core texts that listeners can look at to learn more about deliberate practice to improve our teaching practice. It's almost like this podcast could come with a reading list. It was a really fascinating discussion with loads of insight, honesty and vulnerability. I'm sure you will enjoy this. So let's dive right in. Sarah and Catherine, thanks so much for joining me this evening for the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you both? Really good. Thanks, Darren. Brilliant. So um, today we're going to talk about deliberate practice, which you, which you spoke about uh, so wonderfully at Brewed Cleethorpes uh, online. And that YouTube video is, is available uh, on their YouTube channel. And I'd recommend people people go and watch that to to uh, see the visuals as well, because we're just going to record an audio podcast today. So just to, to ease us off, Sarah, I'm going to come to you first. Can, can you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, um, I, was, I started off as a, as a TA um, after, after university, um, and I TA'd for a bit to see if I was still interested in becoming a teacher <laughs> and then trained with Teach First um, and became a secondary English teacher. Uh, moved schools, um, taught in another kind of Teach First school for a bit and then I kind of stumbled on, um, there was like a role that came up at Teach First for teacher education basically and I, I kind of got involved with that and that was that sort of moved me out of the classroom but still going in and supporting and training new teachers which was really fun. And then um, came across uh, this programme that Ambition, uh, or it was the, what was the Institute for Teaching at the time, 
did, which was a fellowship in teacher education with um, Harry Fletcher Wood, whose work I'd kind of been reading about, um, and did that. And then that kind of, like, I sort of saw what ambition was all about and applied for a job there. And I've been there kind of ever since, um, working on teacher educator programmes. Um, your guest, Dan Hudson, who came on, um, we worked together on one of those programmes. Um, which is really exciting and at the moment I'm an associate dean at, um, at Ambition Institute and we're going to be working on the new MPQ frameworks um, and my kind of favourite bits of work at the moment are working on a research project with the Education Endowment Foundation uh, with Harry Fletcherwood again and Sam Sims and some others um, looking at what mechanisms of effective professional development uh, what, what they are, see if we can work out what they are from the from the literature and a very clever system that Sam and Harry have come up with and um, studying for a, a master's in educational neuroscience at the moment which I'm, I'm really enjoying and Catherine and I uh, are going to have a chat next week and I'm going to pick her brains about her master's and I like talking about our, our, different, our different MAs that we're doing at the moment. Oh, brilliant. Yes, of course, because, uh, Catherine, you might speak about, about your one as well, but that sounds incredibly fascinating, educational neuroscience. What a, which we, men we mentioned, rabbit holes, what a rabbit hole you must go down in that. It must be yeah. so, so fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. And, and Catherine, can I come to you? Can you share a little bit about you and your career in education today, please? Yeah, absolutely, Darren. So um, I'm a primary school teacher by trade um, and worked in four different, very diverse primary schools, um, serving disadvantaged communities in North Solihull and also inner city Birmingham. Um, and after being deputy head at one of those schools, I moved on to be director of professional learning development in a small multi-academy trust um, in inner city Birmingham and then worked um, supporting local schools and trusts uh, with professional learning and development um, and from there I moved on to Ambition Institute for a brief period of time where I was also associate dean in the learning design team um, really interested in leadership development programs in particular I was fortunate to cross paths with Sarah but we never really got a chance to work together um, so we always jump at the chance of doing cool things like this Darren and kicking about our educational ideas um, so I left Ambition Institute and went to the Teacher Development Trust where I'm expert advisor um, working with school leaders uh, to really maximise the impact of their professional learning and development provision. So in particular, looking at the types of conditions uh, that need to be in place to ensure that we um, that teachers flourish. So it's interesting that Sarah references the work that she's doing with Harry and Sam at the moment, looking at the mechanisms that enable us to uh, specifically change teacher habits, which is often has been missing um, to date when we look at what makes effective professional development. But the work we do at the Teacher Development Trust is sort of the other piece of the puzzle, which is looking at the organizational conditions. So very much making sure that um, teachers have the resources, the support, the time uh, to be able to access this really high quality professional development that's focused on changing habits. Brilliant. I'm also, just totally forgot, I'm also doing a master's, yes, at um, <laughs> the University of Gloucestershire with Neil Gilbride, who is absolutely fantastic. Um, so Neil specialises in um, adult ego development and is really interested in the implications this could have for school leaders. 
Um, so my master's with Neil is in um, educational leadership, but I'm very fortunate that I've been taken on by the university as a research associate. And I get to work on an Erasmus funded project where we are trialing um, the creation of some resources that can uh, sort of intentionally interrupt where people are in terms of their ego development um, for, for good uh, to, to make better decisions as school leaders. Um, so that's some really interesting work that we're doing. Well, uh, thanks for referencing Neil and his work because I did a podcast with Neil last year about um, the ego development that people might want to, to go back to. I can't remember what number it was. It might be 20, 20 odd or 30 odd, but Thank you, and it's great that you mentioned um, uh, uh, the work you're doing, work you're doing there, and the work you're doing um, with the Teacher Development Trust. It sounds so fascinating that kind of investigating the mechanisms and support that's in, and combine it with the work that, that Sarah's talking about in terms of the, the habits. And you mentioned changing teacher habits, and we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. So, as I said at the start, we're going to talk about deliberate practice, and I'm going to challenge you both to start off with, and I'm going to come to you first, Catherine. Um, so in a sentence or two, so let's keep, keep it short. What is deliberate practice? So uh, keeping it short, when we think about practice, for too long we focused on the quantity of practice and people might have fixated on the 10,000 hour rule, which was uh, taken from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, uh, where he spoke about that we need at least 10,000 hours of practice Whereas deliberate practice isn't about um, the quantity, but it's about the quality of that practice. And I think for me, that's the really key distinction that the quality of the practice is what enables us to fine tune and hone on, uh, hone in on specific skills that we want to improve. Right. Thank you so much. And Sarah, can I ask you the same question? What is deliberate practice in a sentence or two? Um. Yeah, so de echoing definitely what, what Catherine said about quality over, over quantity. The deliberate practice is, is a systematic method for, for developing expertise um, where it, you focus on a, on a small skill um, in the presence of an expert or someone who, who knows quite a lot more about um, what, you're, what you're learning about and um, you practice in front of them they give you feedback and help you get towards your goal um, and Catherine and I when we did the um the uh, brew ed we were thinking about like concrete examples and what are helpful concrete examples of this um, and a kind of one one really helpful one is thinking about kind of going and playing tennis with your friends and just rocking up and, and playing a bit of tennis and you'll get a bit better and you'll get to a point where you can play and maybe you even win sometimes, but um, you're going to plateau um, and you're probably not going to improve too much. But if you get yourself a tennis coach, they'll probably point you out something that you can improve on, say your serve, they'll isolate that skill, give you feedback and you'll, uh, you'll start to actually kind of improve incrementally. Yeah, thank you. And I like how you mentioned that the isolation of skill, but also alongside the, the, the expert to give you feedback. So I'm going to stick with, with, with you, Sarah, if that's okay. And I'm going to ask you, why do, why do we need it in education? I love this question. I think it's such a good question because it's um, too, too much of professional development is kind of done to uh, teachers. And it's like the, net, the, new, the new shiny thing that we should be doing in schools. Let's pick it up. So this question speaks to the point that, um, that 
professional development should address a need. Um, and the need here, um, one particular need, I suppose, is, is really important. It's that idea of plateauing. So we've got data which shows that teachers immediately get really, like, kind of get better from zero to, you know, 10, they'll get better. And then they sort of plateau off. So a teacher in their sort of 20th year of teaching resembles a teacher in almost like their sort of fifth or sixth year of teaching in terms of um, how, how, um, how good they are. Um, and that's, that's what the data is, is kind of telling us. So experience doesn't equal expertise, but you need experience. Experience is really important. So teachers deserve to, to have professional development that helps them to not plateau, essentially. So that's, that's, there's a problem there around plateauing um, and teachers deserving really good professional development. But why then is deliberate practice the answer or an answer? Um, and I think the reason for that is, is uh, for a few reasons, I'll try and keep them really brief. So the first one is um, we're teaching as a performance profession. Um, we get up and we you know, do things, we, we teach and we're almost on our own kind of stage at the front. Um, and we would expect that any performance profession, be it musicians, sports, uh, men and women, actors, actresses, that they would practice we would be a bit shocked if we paid for our theatre tickets and they and they hadn't practiced. So there's that idea that we're a performance profession and we want to practice before we go live. Um, second reason is like we can um, we can we can predict a lot of the things that are going to happen in the classroom and a lot of the ways that we we need to act so that if we can predict it, we can practice it. Essentially, we can break it down and we can practice it. Um, and then finally, teachers, we don't have a lot of time as teachers because time is, is, is really precious um, and deliberate practice maximises the time we kind of spend improving. It makes us focus on a particular element, move us towards a goal um, and really maximise the time spent on professional development. Can I just jump in there, Darren, because that was a fantastic answer um, from Sarah. But just to pick up on the sort of plateau issue that we have and that comes back to the issues around the conditions that are in schools for, for people to keep improving and keep getting better and she's absolutely right that so much of the professional learning and development that takes place in a school setting is just in addition to and people sort of have these CPD treasure troves and we just keep adding all of this knowledge and disjointed stuff to our treasure troves and we give people very little opportunity then to directly apply that and practice in the classroom and I think you know back when we come back to the first question what is deliberate practice Erickson really explains that actually there has to be that level of um, you know you're making an effort to practice something and I think schools haven't given teachers the time to put in that effort to be very systematic in the way that they practice a particular aspect of their uh, could be instruction um, and so it's really key that we don't just see um, the what but we actually focus on the how and for too long the how hasn't been prevalent in in the way that we've implemented CPD in our schools. Certainly, and it goes back to um, what you said earlier about thinking about the conditions that the that, that teacher have. And, and you mentioned time, and sometimes that's a, a big issue in terms of devoting the, the time to, if we do, if you do um, have CPD, I think it was, um, I think you shared it at the Brewhead Queer event, there was a, I can't remember which, which part of the presentation it was that, that 
Curie, we spoke about Curie off air, they, they found that 1% of, of inset um, actually improved classroom practice. Why don't you speak to that idea? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it, like we. That's I guess the other the other need for it is that currently what we're doing isn't doesn't seem to be working. And as Catherine's saying, like the conditions kind of aren't right for that. Um, and what what we're actually what we're doing is is maybe not not time well spent always. Um, and deliberate practice is a little bit of a nudge towards like how can we spend our time more effectively like actually focusing on systematically improving our practice as teachers mm -hmm. and stripping it back Darren so there's so many competing demands that are coming at teachers now um, and so whilst you know, Sarah and I aren't currently serving in a school. Um, we're, we're focusing on teacher education, but still making sure that we're getting as close to classrooms by talking to teachers and talking to leaders as possible. Um, and I think the key thing is, is that there's just so much out there coming at people all the time that we need to strip it back, get absolute clarity on small incremental steps that we want to practice, ensure that, as, as Sarah mentioned, we've got that uh, expert feedback uh, to be able to um, help us to see the differences that we're making to reflect on the impact of some of those um, small incremental steps that we're taking. Um, and in order to do that and give it justice, people need to be able to strip everything else back and just do, um, you know, one or two things really well and then move on to the next thing, as opposed to trying to uh, spin lots of different plates all in one go. Definitely, I think uh, teachers listening will definitely definitely recognise that idea of, of spinning plates. And, and if I want the conditions to be right, they would appreciate that time to be able to focus on on one or two things to do it well. So let's go a, a little bit little bit deeper. When we talk about deliberate practice, something that comes up often is this idea of of nature versus nurture. So why should why should we in teaching focus on, on nurture and not nature? Um, I think that uh, nurture um, enables us to see that we've all got the potential to keep getting better and to keep improving and um, that actually our expertise isn't fixed. It's not an end point. It's a continuum. I think there's lots of uh, misconceptions about expertise um, and I'm really pleased that we're starting to talk about it, particularly around teacher education. But what we need to recognise is that it is a continuum. There are lots of factors that uh, affect teacher expertise. And often it, it's spoken about that actually expertise is, is just about automaticity, but it's not. Because if we think about driving, for example, I'd say that I've reached automaticity with my driving, but I don't think I'm necessarily getting better. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm anywhere near Lewis Hamilton and I think we need to recognize that automaticity alone doesn't equate to expertise and experience alone doesn't equate to expertise and this comes down to knowledge and um, you know I think when we talk about knowledge sometimes people sort of think oh here we go again you know it's it's the it's the knowledge knowledge camp talking about why we all just need to regurgitate facts but it's not it's really recognizing that as teachers we need really rich bodies of knowledge uh, and to be able to build up our schema and to interconnect that knowledge so that we're not just reaching automaticity but we're actually able to draw upon uh, you know a deep repertoire of knowledge in our long-term memory and I think 
that's really key here when we're looking at the nurture aspect that it absolutely every single one of us is capable of improving making small incremental improvements in specific areas um uh, sarah I, i'm sure you've got uh you know much more that you could add no i, I totally agree yeah and the, the focus on knowledge is, is really important and the understanding of like what we what we mean when we're talking about knowledge like you say catherine is like it's not that just that regurgitating of facts and it's that that kind of what, what we've been talking about as in mental models and having a mental model like connected knowledge that you can use and you can use flexibly and I think that the focus on on nature which I think um Ericsson sort of picks up on is like is actually not particularly helpful um just because okay so if we think about nature as being genetic like genes essentially and like uh, and it's something innate in you which is often what people call like talent for example in teaching we don't know what traits make a good teacher we don't know that we can guess but we don't know if we don't know what traits make a good teacher we can't begin to figure out the thousands of genes which code for these traits and if we if we can't do that then what's the point in really thinking about about that i think what we're interested in is the chunk of um the percentage which is is probably hopefully pretty big that we can affect by the environment um, and I think that's what Ericsson sort of exploited in his tests um, where he looked at memory and he found that practice was could could kind of um, get over what people thought were the limits of, of memory mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that is a nice kind of like metaphor for us like when we think we're at our limit actually deliberate practice is something which can help us to like break that down and move forward I think that's worth focusing on. Catherine, go ahead. Yeah, no, so just, just to say that it is that combination then of increasingly sophisticated schema alongside high degrees of automaticity. So not either or. And, and I think that was, you know, really, really beautifully put by Sarah. It certainly was. And it brings me to, to ask, you both mentioned it right back at the start and this idea of teacher habits. So then... Is deliberate practice in, in schools and teacher education all about changing teacher habits? Sarah, can I come to you first, please? Yeah, I love this question again. It's a great question. It's actually really topical because like loads of stuff is kind of floating around now on Twitter about habits. Um, and I've changed my thinking really recently on habits as well. well I'm um, excited to hear this then. <laughs> <laughs> this has been conversations with, uh, with, a, with a few colleagues that have just really helped to push my thinking. Um, but I kind of, I thought, I think we need to think about what we understand as a habit or this whole conversation is going to be really jarring. So essentially, like I used to think that a habit was cued by the environment. So not cued by kind of processing something, you just cued the environment and you do something. And if you think of it like that, it's completely unconscious and it's very difficult to break but it's also like very useful. You can have useful habits, can't you, that, that really help you. Um, but then I was kind of thinking about my habits and I was thinking, you know, I get up in the morning, I get dressed and I go for a run in the morning. But there's loads of steps. It's not like I get up and I'm out for a run. I have to put my clothes on and stuff, you know? So there's loads of steps within that. So there's a, a really nice paper um, which talks about these kind of action sequences. So there's a cue that, that triggers like a, a habit, which is an action sequence. And actually um, some people have kind of pushed my thinking on, on habits in that direction. And that, when you think about it, um, is kind of how experts work. 
they, they're cued and they complete some kind of action sequence. They have these rich schema mental models which allow them to make decisions in kind of like novel situations. Um, so what you might call um, adaptive expertise, so they're able to adapt. However, I've got a, a strong hunch now, um, as uh, I've kind of been persuaded, that a lot of what people do to kind of conserve our cognitive resource um, is, is habitual, is, is reasonably mm. habitual, whether it's a, a habit that's like that, cued by the environment, or whether it's a, an action sequence generally what we do is is habitual and that's not necessarily a bad thing unless we're trying to change something um in which case that can make it really difficult um which is why we are looking at things like deliberate practice to try to as one solution not the solution but one solution to try to break and change habits so that's where my thinking has got to so I yeah so you can see um I'm absolutely like waiting to come in here because <laughs> that's a great conversation and I messaged Peps, Peps McRae this week because I really struggle with habits I struggle to uh manage my time um you know everybody anybody who knows me knows that that's a continuous problem for me switching off and having downtime because I think that education has become almost a hobby <laughs> and so I don't know when to stop reading blogs and listening to podcasts um I need to get a life but basically I I was talking to peps about how, how to create better habits around my work patterns i've been reading um everything and anything by cal newport and deep work and i just want to pick up on that point that sarah makes about our behaviors being habitual because i think that there is some relevance here in going back to the early 1970s and the work of organizational psychologists arduris and shern who um look at theories of action and actually how our habits are created by our theories of action and those uh, unconscious beliefs and values that accumulate over time and are essentially built up. At, they're the stories we tell ourselves, that internal narrative, and they're not necessarily based in any fact. Um, and it links to the work of Daniel Kahneman actually in system one and system two thinking and we really rely on these theories of action so our beliefs and values shape our actions and have both intended and unintended consequences and I really do really really do believe that deliberate practice is a very robust intentional way that we can interrupt some of those actions and help people reshape those beliefs and values that underpin their practice in the classroom um, I think it's super sophisticated stuff that we're talking about here and that's where I think it's not just about deliberate practice um, it's also about those professional conversations that run alongside the practice sessions so um, as you can see I've become very animated and I think it's just because when I think back to my own initial teacher education and my NQT uh, and everything in between um, you know I think I well, we, we, I touched upon this in, in the Brewer presentation, just Frankenstein together, uh, lots of different um, pieces of practice based on what I was seeing from other people, as opposed to having any idea about habits or mental models or what it was actually was that I was meant to be doing. <laughs> so can, you, can you elaborate that? We're going to come to that. I was going to come to that later, but let's do, talk about that now. Can you elaborate what you mean by Frankenstein and, and piecing it together? Would that just mean that you were just piecing together your practice based on what you thought was good practice rather than knowing what good practice looked like and practiced in that yeah so um i um by no means want to uh 
sort of discredit or rubbish initial teacher education. I was really pleased with my PGC at Birmingham University. Um, but what I think I've reflected on is that I then went into a school that ended up in special measures um, and with the best will in the world, uh, my mentor tried to support me, but I didn't really ever know I didn't really ever know the why or the how I was just told the what and I'd go and observe other teachers would sometimes have someone with me and if I didn't I'd sort of try and piece together what it was that they were doing and how they had that impact and I think it became more about going and sort of copying and trying to mirror then in my classroom um, as opposed to actually really understanding the why, the what, the how, and the when, which is, you know, that adaptive expertise alongside the automaticity. Um, and so I think there is a danger that, um, you know, when I then became a middle and senior leader, we had uh, the teacher standards and the teacher standards would be um, very influential uh, in terms of supporting NQTs in the schools that I worked at. Um, but actually just getting someone to practice an objective from the teacher standards is not really going to help them systematically improve their performance. And so when I say we Frankenstein together our practice, it, it's a sense of just taking bits and pieces from people that we may or may not have had chance to observe or listening to conversations, as opposed to being really systematic and, in, and controlled in the way that we develop expertise. Um, so I think then looking back at my classroom practice, um, it was only when I was fortunate enough to work for a, a head teacher who was really into expertise and had done a master's, um, had gone on to further study and then sort of revolutionized the way in which we uh, used coaching as a mechanism to develop practice. And I think that feedback, that clarity, um, small incremental steps, suddenly I realized that, you know, prior to that, I'd just gone around observing other people and trying to mirror that in my classroom without really understanding why I was doing it. It's interesting you talk about that systemized approach because we're going to come back later on to talk about instructional coaching, which seems very much in vogue just now, but um, feeding into this conversation uh, and talking about changing teacher habits and giving that practice, it prioritized that. But I just want to give a nod to Cal Newport. I use my, my time bot planner from Cal uh, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis. So talking about the, the habits, I, my life has become one big giant time block but let's get back to back to topic you've mentioned uh, uh, both the uh, separate times this idea of expertise and teacher expertise so um is it important to consider the difference between novice and expert teachers yeah it's absolutely crucial and um, uh, the reason for that i think when you sort of take a step back is is because if you don't then you're not recognizing that teaching is a developmental process. Mm. What, you're, what, you're, what you're saying is experts just become experts. Therefore, I will just teach them how to be an expert. So it just comes back to what Catherine was saying, which I think is really important around how when she was training, she would mirror um, the teachers that she saw. And that's not a developmental process because that's not recognizing the people who are training her not recognizing that essentially like it took that expert many steps to get there and I think um, a really nice way of thinking about it was I think it was Daisy Christodoulou was talking about running a marathon if you want to run a marathon you don't go out and run a marathon you train you build up to it you do different things you eat differently you sleep more 
um, you, you do um, sprints as well as long runs, etc. So if we think about teaching like that, expertise, yes, is the end goal, but there are different things we need to do to get to that end goal that aren't the end goal. So we don't get up and try to uh, mirror a te an expert teacher necessarily in many skills. We have to like take that slowly and build that up and help support the teacher to understand what's going on in the expert's head and train them to, to get there. Um, I think another thing to recognise is that expertise is, um, we say this a lot, um, Catherine's very, very bored of hearing it, domain specific. <laughs> so um, you, there's probably no such thing as an expert teacher. Um, they're probably, they're like, there are people who you might consider expert in particular areas. Mm -hmm. So um, we often give the example of like a, a year one teacher who's been teaching in year one for, for 10 plus years maybe, and they feel very confident and comfortable, then gets moved to year five or year six. Um, and that expertise, they might feel um, they can draw upon some of what they knew, but then they might feel a bit um, at sea. And there's some really lovely work by um, Berliner uh, uh, on this about teacher expertise um, and, and how it develops. And, and Peps McRae, who Catherine talked about earlier, talks about like these different areas of expertise that, mm -hmm. that teachers have, which is, is a really useful way. So short answer is yes, we must think about it because different teachers at different stages need, in different domains, need different types of instruction. So a really novice teacher would need things really broken down, really tiny area to work on, modelled, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then an expert teacher can be doing more, more kind of problem solving and looking at those more novel situations that we were talking about earlier on. And then don't forget, we talk about novice and expert, but there's everything in between. So <laughs> like, there's lots of, lots of different stages to think about. And I think that's really key, Sarah. So, you know, expertise isn't a threshold that we all pass. Um, it really is that continuum that we move along. And I think it's really wise for you to make reference to a change in year group. Um, and I think, you know, what's really key here is that we've all got the potential to develop our expertise in different domains, different areas. And I think that's really empowering and requires a, a certain amount of humility that actually nobody's the finished article or the done deal. And I love that because we're in education where we're really instilling in students uh, the love of learning, uh, you know, how important it is for them to continually be in search of knowledge, insights, um, to reflect, to connect and it's exactly the same for teachers um and I think when we come back to uh you know observing expertise it's actually really really hard to unpack what they do um and I think we're learning more about it and Pepsi's work is absolutely fantastic a uh, really concise uh way of understanding that sort of expertise um, continue, continuum and just really recognizing that it's essentially increasingly sophisticated schemas um, with that high degree of automaticity and in order to but it's a gradual accumulation so I think to emphasize Sarah's point you know it's accumulation of knowledge over time practice and training and yeah I think the marathon analogy is a really really great one um, and really helpful that it's not just practice it's a very specific systematic targeted uh, practice that develops our expertise certainly and it brings me smoothly on i'm going to stick with stick with you Catherine, uh, for, from that is and ask you is there a difference then between purposeful practice 
and deliberate practice. Okay, so um, I'm going to really model some vulnerability here um, because something that I also feel really passionate about, Darren, is that we don't create um, a sense of absolutism in the education sector. And sometimes I feel when you see things on Twitter, it can feel so absolute, but yet I think we need to be very open-minded and flexible in our thinking because, um, you know, we're constantly learning new things. Research is constantly being at, um, adapted and updated. And I love that. I love the flexibility. And so I'm going to be really honest. Sarah and I have had quite a few conversations about the difference between purposeful practice and deliberate practice. And so I'm going to say what I think um, what I think it is with the caveat that I might be wrong and that's where Sarah can jump in and uh, save me um, but I'm sort of I'm just going with it because I'm really aware that some listeners would hopefully just really value that honesty and also the evolution of my ideas over time so basically I think purposeful practice for me is perhaps without that expert input from a coach. So you might not necessarily have somebody in your um, organization, in your school, who can provide that coaching feedback. Um, but there are plenty of other things that I could do to develop my teaching practice. So let's just imagine I'm in a school that doesn't have coaching culture, that isn't doing instructional coaching. Does that mean then I can't um, practice? Well, no, of course it doesn't. It means that actually I can engage in purposeful practice, but I am missing that um, opportunity for feedback, which we know is one of the principles of deliberate feedback. So it's not, it's not deliberate practice, but it is purposeful. So I can look at clips of other teachers teaching. I can um, really hone in on a, on a specific aspect of my pedagogy and practice that I want to refine. I might use pupil voice. So I've done this previously as a classroom teacher uh, with my year five and six children. Um, I wanted to improve my amount of questioning. I'm sorry, I wanted to improve my wait time from questioning. I wanted to talk less, increase my amount of clarity, better explanations, models. I was fortunate that Upper Key Stage 2, I was able to talk to them about some of these things. You know, their, their voice was really powerful and the work of Graham Nettles, Hidden Lives of Learners, really influenced some of the things that I did to practice in my classroom. Um, I can also uh, read and, uh, you know, we're blessed to have such a range of different books available to us, read blogs, consider implications for my own practice. So making every primary lesson count is a great book that can be used for purposeful practice because it gives really clear insights into, uh, you know, the, the, the core strategies um, that we can use in the classroom um, to maximize our impact but essentially it's purposeful in the sense that I know that I want to focus on key areas and I'm going to go in search of mechanisms that might help me so it could be simulation but if I don't have that feedback then it's not deliberate practice and this is where I actually would love to be <laughs> to be wrong because I think we need to model this a bit more in in the education sector because um Research is, is wonderful for me because I'm constantly reflecting and refining and updating my views. And I love it when I have the wrong end of the stick and somebody then can course correct a misconception. Yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna jump in and save you because I don't know, Catherine. So I, was, I, was, uh, um, I don't know the answer, but I, like, I do love that you're open and um, helping me to be open about not knowing the answer. And I think you're right. Like, we're drawing from research here that 
so I mean we're going to get we're going to talk about this later but essentially like we've talked about deliberate practice a little bit we're going to talk about the kind of different stages of it and we talked about why we think it's helpful and I think that's right but there's lots of criticisms of using deliberate practice in in teaching um so for example one criticism could be um that has been leveled at, at using deliberate practicing in teaching is like we don't have an agreed upon goal like we don't agree what good good teaching practice looks like and we were just having a conversation Darren weren't we about teaching practice in Scotland and you know it, it, we all seem to have these different conceptions of, of what it is so if we don't have a goal it's very difficult to break it down and work towards it so that's been one of the major criticisms of using it in teaching I still think it's really useful I know Catherine does um, but I think what Catherine says about purposeful practice is really important because just because you maybe don't have access to every element of the deliberate, deliberate practice, for example, an expert, Catherine was really keen when we're doing the, the Brewhead talk to, to really like say, look, let's be real about this. We might not be able to do it perfectly, but there is like purposeful practice and we can help ourselves and take control. Um, and a while ago, when I was at Teach First, I tried to do this with a bunch of teachers who were so keen on deliberate practice, but just as Catherine was saying, that it didn't have that culture in their school. So I would email them a model um, of, 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 the, of the practice that I wanted them to do and essentially like scaffold the steps and they'd have a go at it and they'd film themselves doing it and send it back to me. So it was all, it, and I didn't really give feedback. I just sort of checked it wasn't going completely off course. So that was pretty much like purposeful practice. I can't say whether it worked or not. I can't evaluate that, but there is, there is a way of doing it if you don't have access to an expert. And so I would echo what Catherine says about like still trying to push yourself to use some of the elements that we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. And I used to do a lot of filming of myself. We, we couldn't, we, we didn't have a, a paid for subscription to, to, to do films, um, but we just used iPads and I used to do a lot of audio clips um, and I'd film the beginning part of my lesson because that was something that I was working on. Um, and I think for me, it was purposeful because I knew that I wanted to reduce the amount of um, sort of, so there were lots of different things I looked at. So it was increasing the amount of question of, of time after I'd asked a question, um, reduce my amount of waffle in my explanations. Um, and I'd play these back and I'd watch them and I'd cringe. And I actually still do play back presentations I deliver or podcasts I'm involved in and listen for very uh, particular things. Clarity for me is uh, always, always something I'm working on because I think as I speak and that can be great if you're having a philosophical conversation with someone in an informal setting. But obviously when you're then being recorded for a podcast or delivering a, you know, delivering a presentation, it's not always helpful for everybody else to just have a brain dump <laughs> and see your thoughts evolve as you're talking, which I'm doing now. Um, but, you, you know, I think I can play these things back and be very purposeful in terms of what I want to get out of them. But it's not the same as me then sending it to um, somebody who's regarded as having expertise in that particular domain, public speaking or whatever it was that I wanted to focus on perhaps going to um oliver to, to have a look at my um my slide design you know that could be another thing and getting some expert feedback um and i think that's the distinction for me is that uh you know without that coach it's not deliberate practice but it can still be purposeful certainly and, and i love that what you've both said there about that 
just even though you don't ha- might not have that instructional coaching uh, culture and, and I'm on Clubhouse, I asked Jen Brimming about Marine Academy and what they do, and they've got a clearly set out, this is what expert teaching is in our school, and they, they have their action steps towards that. But I like what you mentioned there, that's not in your school, because it, it speaks to me and my experience uh, um, of teaching, because I've done done the same. I've, I use TLAC online, I watch the videos, I video myself, uh, I watch it back, and equally, <laughs> equally like yourself, I'm, I, I can't believe the, some of the things I do, you know, the way you stand and the way the way you speak and, and so on. It is, but it's, it's so useful that you, you can improve your own practice, despite, even though that in your school there's maybe not that that culture. So thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, Sarah, can I come to you next? And, and can we go a little bit, a bit deeper into the deliberate practice? And can you share what are the, the five core principles of, of deliberate practice that we should consider when, when thinking about um, teacher education? Yeah. Um, so I think there were initially Ericsson had like seven principles, but he wasn't really thinking about um, teaching. Um, so, so what cleverly, um, the deans for impact um, did was to take his work and take his thinking and others and and come up with five principles for how it would work with teaching. Nicer to have five than seven, isn't it? And so he came up with push beyond, so like beyond your comfort zone, which I think is is a a nice one because it's like obviously you want to practice something just outside and that fits with people's notions of like Vygotsky and the zone of proximal development and stuff like that. Um, so push beyond have specific goals so that's where I mentioned that actually like teaching's hard for that and um, we do have some stuff though Darren you mentioned teach like a champion um, and there are other ways we can kind of access what we think is is really um, kind of good teaching and, and models for that um, so you've got those specific goals um, you want to focus really intently on it so we talked about the serve earlier and, and, and kind of focusing on a little bit of your practice and then you want high quality feedback. So ideally that high quality feedback comes from, from an expert in the field. Um, and that all helps you to build your mental model. So mental models kind of last there, but the whole thing is about being able to create a mental model. Um, so that's like an, a real understanding of what good practice is in that area. Um, so I think like I, the way I always think about this is like, you know, when you're learning an instrument, so say you're learning the piano and you've got a, a piano teacher kind of next to you while you're with them for that hour, they're giving you feedback and they're stopping you and getting you to practice another bar again, over again, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you're developing a mental model with them of what this piece should sound like. Um, how should my posture be when I'm playing this piece? What timing do I want for this piece? Um, and then you take that mental representation, that mental model and away with you and you do purposeful practice, you know, by yourself in your own time and that's expected of you. So that's the kind of thing that I latch onto with, with that. But yeah, those are, those are the kind of five. But yeah, Catherine will probably expand a bit on, on some of those hopefully. No, I I think that's a really great way then of of drawing in that distinction between deliberate practice in its entirety and then opportunity for purposeful practice and and using that mental model then over time. So um, I think Ericsson uh, sadly passed away last year and one of the last podcasts um, that he delivered um, and I've now completely forgotten the name of it. I'm so sorry. Um, 
I will find it for you though, Darren, so that you was can. It was it Don't Tell Me the Score with Simon? Don't Tell Me the Score. It was Don't Tell Me the Score. Yeah, fantastic podcast. And he really goes through, um, you know, the key principles of deliberate practice and talks about the fact that when pushing beyond, we don't want to uh, go too far so that we are in the panic zone and it just becomes too much of a challenge. But we don't want to just keep doing what we can already do. And I think that can sometimes be our traditional model of CPD and particularly inset when we're all in the hall and we're all getting the same blanket messages. So really what we're talking about is identifying small um, aspects of our practice that are just above our comfort zone. So in basketball, it could be, you know, taking a shot at a slightly more challenging angle or a little bit further away, et cetera, or, or practicing having, you know, multiple defenders and still trying to score. Um, and in the classroom, for me, I was always trying to, uh, as I said, improve my explanations, improve my modeling, each time trying to just push beyond what I felt that I was already able to do and having those really tight, specific goals so you know where you're heading so you can make that comparison before and after. Um, and then the focus, I think, comes back to the beginning of this interview where, you know, we need to strip everything back so that people can focus on one thing and do it really well without having lots of different um, CPD uh, themes coming at them. So, so you're literally having to think about so many different things. That you don't have the bandwidth then to be able to have that sharp focus on, on, on that specific skill or that you're trying to practice. And then the key thing is that quality feedback. Um, and I love Sarah talking about the insights from working at Teach First and sharing that feedback via email. I spoke at the Charter College of Teaching to the C-Teach cohort about that very thing that, you know, in the cases where you might not be in the school, you can create simulations. So you can give people an example of a simulation um, or a scenario, I should say, um, and ask them then to outline what they would do. And then you can provide feedback on that. And that's a really powerful mechanism um, as well. And especially if you don't have that coaching culture in your organization. And essentially that mental model then is, is that representation of, um, you know, the difference that you want to make and, and being able to uh, draw upon a really robust visual representation of what it is that you want to achieve. So I spend a lot of time um, watching presentations of people, I'm not gonna start naming them all because that's really cringe, but people who I think are particularly good public speakers, then I'll watch their presentations and I don't actually watch them to listen to the content. Um, I, watch to, I watch to listen to their tone of voice, their intonation. <coughs> excuse me, the fact that they don't cough <laughs> in the middle of what they're saying. Um, and yeah, and that helps me then build up my mental model. Sorry, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, sorry. I, yeah, I, I think what's what's also kind of really important, which I think was a definite misconception of mine when I first came to deliberate practice, was the idea that only um, really small, discrete skills can be practiced. So, um, like, for example, behaviour management really lends itself to this idea of, of deliberate practice in some ways, like, you know, using non-verbals and having kind of back pocket phrases for things, all really helpful stuff, like, that does definitely benefit. But um, uh, we had on, on the um, on the Brew Ed talk, Harry Fletcherwood came on and talked about how you can use it with decision making. Um, and I think that's a really interesting 
yeah. area because what we're not saying is we're not saying that teaching is this like discrete taxonomy of skills um what we are saying is like things can things can be practiced and we can isolate even decisions that we make in the classroom and to practice those decisions in like um in scenarios the way that Catherine's described them is really helpful because that will help to build your mental model when you come to use and make those decisions in your classroom so not seeing deliberate practice as this like sort of small discrete skill-based thing but also decision making as well I think is really powerful which then excitingly uh you know is, is a fantastic prospect for school leadership um, because actually school leadership is about decision making all the time isn't it in really complex situations and teaching is about decision making in really complex co situations because the classroom is complex and I think what we're doing here then is we're starting to see how that automaticity alongside you know really highly developed schema enables us to free up that space to be very much more metacognitive in our decision-making process. And I feel that it's also really, really relevant to school leadership. And something else I'm practicing at the moment um, is active listening, which is super hard because I get overly excited about all sorts of things and I have to really stop myself from wanting to jump in and say, yes, or have you read this? Or have you thought about that? And so on the calls I've been having as a chair of governor, um, I, I, you know, I've been making an, a, a real... Uh, what's the word, um, an active decision to take more time to listen intently, make some small notes, uh, not want to jump in, to, to ask clarifying questions, to be able to give, I'm also trying to create more space for silence so that we can do some some thinking as opposed to just filling it with waffle, which I have a tendency to do and I'm modeling now. Uh, but what I'm basically trying to say is there are so many exciting areas that we can apply the you know deliberate practice to. It isn't just about classroom teaching, it is also about school leadership. And one day I'll come on your podcast and I'll say very little and you'll know that I've nailed it. <laughs> I think I think I think that that's is incredibly important for so many for so many reasons that it extends to other things I know we're talking about it in terms of teaching but Catherine's been thinking hard about it in terms of leadership and if you kind of marry that together with your podcast with Dan as well it's like the idea that if you want your teachers to do deliberate practice you're only going to have the credibility to kind of get them to do it if you're doing it yourself um so there's that 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 culture and credibility piece mm -hmm. as well around around leaders engaging in deliberate practice and feeling uncomfortable you know mm -hmm. with with doing it at first and uh, expertise is domain specific so there's a there's a level of expertise involved in actually doing deliberate practice that you need to you need to kind of gain so yeah an area, an area i think we could all do with practicing as leaders is meetings we have so many meetings that we all pr probably sit through and you know really really want to stab ourselves in the eye with a pencil because it could have just been said in half an hour but we're two hours in and we're still you know talking on agenda point two so there's so many things that we can apply this to um uh yes certainly as to meetings there's a, probably loads of decisions in there that if we just practiced the scenarios we could shorten our meetings exactly yeah absolutely so thank you um let's let's move on move on a little bit thanks so much for that so 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 fascinating and i'm going to come to sarah on this one because um 
I know that the, the, the Work at Ambition Institute does, talks a lot about instructional coaching and instructional coaching is getting a lot of attention currently. I know for, for my podcast alone, I've had Jack Tavasley Marsh and, and Dan Hudson both come on and talk about the instructional coaching models they have in their school. Um, can I ask you then, is, is this the best way to use deliberate practice as part of a school's CPD offer? That is another great question. Um, I think um, that we want to kind of take a step back and, and kind of recognise that like deliberate practice is a form and, and that Harry and Sam Sims make this distinction between like different sort of programmes, forms and mechanisms. And in, instructional coaching is a form of professional development. It isn't like deliberate practice, it isn't a good unto itself. It's not just going to work. Um, it's a it's important to to kind of think about how you're implementing this form. So there's been research that suggests that instructional coaching does support teachers to get better. And what the EEF kind of systematic review that we're working on is, is it was almost looking at like why, what is it that's 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 making some CPD work and not others? What's the mechanisms? So I think if we kind of look at instructional coaching, we can see why it's taken off because if it's, and there's, there's many conceptions of instructional coaching. I'm, I'm, I'm talking um, really uh, specifically about something very broad, <laughs> which is not helpful, but essentially there are some key things that if we factor them into this instructional coaching, they may make it work. I think it's important to be tentative at this point, just as like Catherine's saying about like, we don't have the answer, but if we look at instructional coaching, so instructional coaching, contains deliberate practice where where there is evidence to suggest that deliberate practice um, helps support expertise development so we could say that practice is a mechanism that supports instructional coaching to work it's bespoke to the teacher so you'd go in and you'd watch a teacher teach and then you um you give them feedback and that can the level of negotiation of that feedback is, is different potentially depending on how expert they are, depending on what model you use, etc. But it's bespoke and you could say a mechanism is that it's bespoke. I don't know that, but that's, you could say that. Um, so there are elements of instructional coaching that, that could be mechanisms of effective PD and therefore could make it work and therefore we should use it potentially in a particular way. Um, However, instructional coaching, as I said, like it's got different conceptions of it. So you, you'd, want, you'd want to use a conception of instructional coaching that actually contains these mechanisms. And some really interesting reading is, is some blogs by uh, Josh CPD, who, who, who does some really interesting blogs on, on instructional coaching and his thinking on this. Um, in terms of, is it the best thing? Then I have to come back to kind of what Catherine was saying earlier about like professional development um, being about the what, the why, the when, as well as the how. So if you think what instructional coaching done well does is it starts off with a conversation, picking up on, on what the teacher did last week, uh, you know, praising them and helping, helping them to embed that habit that they started. Again, habit might be a mechanism. Um, and then they, they probe an area um, of for development essentially and they they probe it and a good coach will help the teacher to see through their model and through the way they, they coach them the what the why and the when as well as demonstrating the how 
And I think as a wraparound, instructional coaching encases deliberate practice in a really beneficial way for supporting professional development. But, and Catherine, can I come to you about the same question? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think I can add anything uh, in addition to that. Um, I suppose, um, I think Sarah's done a great job of sort of outlining um, the potential of instructional coaching and why it, it seems to be such a powerful mechanism. Um, I think like anything, it then comes back down to those supportive conditions. So the school environment piece, the Kraft and Pape research into types of environments where teachers keep improving, uh, they resist that plateau. And actually those six key factors, which are principal leadership, um, behavior for learning, uh, you know, performance management and appraisals, um, really making sure that you know, we're investing in um, professional development, um, collaboration now collaboration is an interesting one because obviously there's lots of research that suggests that it's one of the most effective mechanisms or it's a, it's an effective element of professional development and yet lots of collaboration is done really poorly and we don't really know as much as perhaps we think we do about collaboration so I think that can still be contested um and I've now forgotten what the sixth is because <laughs> I've lost my train of thought but there are essentially six key factors of which I've given you five. Um, but, you know, I think the key thing is, is that recognizing that for instructional coaching to work within your organized school culture, can't believe I forgot it. It's school culture. That's the sixth. I was about to say the school culture needs to be one where people are going to be willing to embrace their vulnerabilities, talk about their misconceptions, discuss the things they're finding hard, as opposed to feeling like that classroom door has to shut or the office door has to shut and you're on your own. You know, Vivian Robinson talks about this, school improvement is a team endeavor. And I love that because it involves every single person in the organization talking about their practice, sharing the things that they're working on. And at some of the schools that I've worked in, you know, we really worked hard to talk to our colleagues colleagues about areas of our practice that we were wanting to improve so similarly to me working on my own classroom practice I'd also share with my teams uh, elements of my leadership practice that I wanted feedback on so it was always listening not jumping into conversations um, and you know I think if you model that to others then they become much more willing to do the same themselves and so I think instructional coaching is one really powerful mechanism to ensure that we um, redefine habits, redevelop habits, I'm not quite sure what the right terminology is there, but essentially it's all very much dependent on being fe really feeling like you can be seen to talk about what, what you're struggling with. Definitely, and it comes back to what we said about the start, about the, the conditions of, of the school that helps support that, that deliberate practice. And, and Sarah, you've spoken about kind of the instructional model and, and, and the coach, they're praising um what they've seen to try and embed that habit and then offering them a, a, a model of what, what to do next. And it's so important that that's such a, um, that's a safe environment, a supportive environment for the teacher to practice and not feel um, intimidating and so on. So thanks for, for speaking about all that. Um, before we move to the quick fire questions, um, a couple a couple more things. And, and Sarah, can I come to you um, to start off this one? Um, we've, mentioned, we've mentioned so much uh, deliberate practice, habits, 
purposeful practice, expertise, novice teachers. Um, can you then guide us to um, some core texts that listeners can, can look at to learn more about deliberate practice and improving teaching practice? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, just got on a little list, but I've got my favourite one, which I'm going to talk about first, which is possibly the, like, the geekiest book on deliberate practice that I've read, which is um, Practice Perfect by Doug Lamov, um, Woolaway and Yezzy, which is um, just so detailed, but not in an annoying way. They really present it nicely and they talk you through their principles of deliberate practice. So it's really useful for someone thinking about deliberate practice, also very useful for teaching and learning leads who might want to create a culture of deliberate practice um, in, their, in their school. Um, uh, so that, that would be my, my top pick. It's not that long, it's quite an easy read. Um, Harry Fletcherwood has, um, a, has a set of blogs in, on his website, Improving Teaching, which I just think are gold dust. Like we, we use them all the time on, on the programmes. They're just really easy to read, research informed, practical stuff. So I go for that. Dan Hudson, who's a guest on your show, uh, Darren, his blogs are really useful from a what's, how's it working in school kind of way. Um, and Josh Goodrich is on Twitter as Josh underscore CPD and he writes some great stuff about this as well. And then of course, Peak by Anders Ericsson, which is just really like, you wouldn't expect it to be an enjoyable read, would you Catherine? Like, it really is. It really is, yeah. So I think that would be, um, I think you can get that on Audible as well if you're more an audiobook person. So those, yeah, those would be mine. And, and Catherine, do you have any more to, to add to that? Yeah, so um, I think uh, completely agree I'd start with Peak. And then another book that's uh, kind of similar to that is Talent is Overrated. So what really separates world-class performers from everybody else? And that's by Jeff Colvin. Um, and it's a... It's there's some similarities, but there's also some slight nuance and difference, and I love that because then that creates that sort of space for some flexibility in, in terms of thinking. Um, totally echo practice perfect, Doug Lemoff, and I think that using a model such as Teach Like a Champion or um, Tom and Oliver's walkthroughs are a really um, robust. A set of tools to help you build that mental model of what of, of what you know really effective teaching looks like so I'd in incorporate those and I think from a leadership perspective then something like Bambrick Santoyo's leverage leadership would be a really helpful um, resource for leaders to consider fine-tuning specific areas of their practice and then um, as Sarah already mentioned before the deans for impact uh, journal is freely available on their website practice with purpose um, i'd also go to ambitions website and download the original um, journal that harry put together i think with the first master's cohort which is um, developing professional development for teacher change then i'd go to them recently updated one although i think it's due to be updated again is the deliberate practice in teacher education a handbook um, and if you're wanting to find out a little bit more about habits, I've read so many books on habits um, and yet to crack uh, some of my deep-rooted habits, um, but The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg is fantastic and I think is a, is a really excellent, um, straightforward read. Um, and finally, my, my go-to text, which I feel is so, um, which underpins everything that we've spoken about, is Thanks for the Feedback. Um, by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen, because um, I think for instructional coaching to be um, impactful, 
or any form of coaching or feedback to be impactful in a school setting, we need to really develop our knowledge and understanding of what effective feedback looks like, the elements that are an art, the elements that are a science. And I think that is a really um, articulate book that outlines some fantastic strategies that you can apply in your practice. So just right. a few recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you, such a, such a, a, a rich, um, Reading list. Incidentally, I think I've got them all on my, my, my shelf over there. So I need to get I need to get reading them so I can I can share in the, the wealth of knowledge that you guys have shared tonight. And before we move on to my quick fire questions, the questions I ask every guest, which are are fully loaded and, and broad, but I, I'm so fascinated by what people say. Um Catherine, can I ask you first, can you share your Twitter handle and, and any links to any of the work that, that you're doing that you think people might be interested in? Yes, so I'm at klmorgan underscore two. Um, and you'll find on my Twitter handle a really comprehensive spreadsheet of, um, I think, thousands of resources now that I've collated. So podcast episodes collated into themes, blogs, video clips. It needs updating um, and will hopefully give listeners some further insight into what I spend my time <laughs> doing. <laughs> go to the teach development trust certainly thank you and i'm working out i'm definitely more than halfway through that that list that you share so thank you and um sarah can i come to you can you share uh, your twitter handle and links to any work that that you think listeners might be interested in yeah um I, I, I love that spreadsheet, by the way, Catherine. It's brilliant. It's so useful. And it's categorized. So it's just, yeah, it's really helpful. And um, so I'm at overpracticed. Um, you know, which is really apt for this, isn't it? Um, but uh, so I've written a blog on fertile habits on Ambition's website, if you want to read that. I'm also in the process of trying to kind of come up with a series of blogs on um, my master's dissertation on retrieval practice. So hopefully that will, that will happen. I'm going to show them to Catherine first to get some feedback. Hopefully. Absolutely brilliant. I'm very much looking forward to read that. And your master sounds so fascinating. So thank you so much. And um, I'd encourage um, listeners to, to get in touch with you because you're both absolutely fantastic on the, the social media. So thank you very much. So now the quick fire round. Um, how I'm going to do this, I'm going to come to Sarah first and Catherine second. Um, I want these answers to be short, um, but speak from the heart, shoot from the hip, that kind of thing. Um, so are you both ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff. Short. You had me at short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now really sweating. <laughs> I'm not really sweating, but you know. Anyway, as you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're ready. So quick fire question. So we know the rules. Shoot from the hip, keep it short, Sarah first, Catherine second. So, um, Sarah, uh, what makes great teaching for you? Um, what makes great teaching? I knew this was coming because I listened to your podcast. I didn't prepare for it. I didn't practice. Um, what makes great teaching? Uh, great teaching um, is in part about developing great relationships with your pupils, but through those great relationships and developing those great relationships, um, through your kind of really high expectations of pupils backed by your your knowledge of your subject of phase and how you convey that to them so I think yeah yeah that's it short and sweet. Catherine? 
Okay, so um, I agree um, and I would sort of specify that really great teaching is all about knowledge, knowledge of yourself, so your metacognition, ability to self-reflect, knowledge of your learners, your ability to um, have really fantastic positive relationships with them and their knowledge of your, uh, your your practice so for me I think really honing in on things like um, explanation modeling and really great questioning enables us then to be uh, very responsive to our students needs great thank you question two so again we'll come to Sarah first uh, what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom Um, I guess I would have to say, um, I would have to say shared understanding, shared language, um, as the kind of first step. Um, I think that you can't really go very far with developing teaching unless you have some sense of what you mean by great teaching. So um, I'm not saying that it has to be super concrete and that everyone has to teach in exactly the same way, but I think we need to come to a shared understanding um, if we are to um, engage in things like we've talked about today, like deliberate practice, instructional coaching, et cetera. Certainly, thank you. And Catherine? Uh, I'm really sorry, can you repeat the question? Because I was thinking about it and then I couldn't remember what you actually said. <laughs> so what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? School culture. I, 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 I really do think it's an incredibly nuanced um, concept, if it's even a concept, and it's very difficult to define. So without trying to define it, I think our focus really needs to be on um, communication, being at the heart of absolutely everything that we're doing, relationships and high levels of trust so that we can develop classroom practice because we're not fearful of judgment or being labeled as unsatisfactory requires improvement. I mean, it's actually insane the types of things that we've done to teachers. Um, and so for me, uh, school culture in all of its beautiful complexity is, is something that I would focus on specifically on communication. Right, thank you. And the final question, um, Sarah, if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? Oh God, I knew, I knew this was coming. Um, one thing in education. Catherine gets longer to think. Um, <laughs> um, if change, one thing in education, what would I change? Uh, do you know what I would change, actually? Um, I... I think I would change. This is a bit. This is a bit off off piece, but this is. I do find this really irritating. So I think a lot of teachers leave because they don't want to go into the leadership, and they don't feel appreciated as a classroom teacher. And I think this links into into uh, PD. Um, I don't think that there are routes at the moment for teachers to remain in the classroom and be recognised as the experts that they are that are developing. And that might be because we don't really believe we are developing expert teachers because our PD isn't doing the job. So that links nicely back to what we're talking about today. So I would have um, a, an understanding of the professionalism and the expertise it takes to remain in the classroom and hone your skill as a teacher. I mean, that's so wonderful because I, I interviewed Mark Jesnick um, last night from Art John Keats and he said 
pretty much the same thing about the value we place on classroom teaching. And it's uh, just one anecdote before I go to, go to Catherine is that um, I was on a, a session last week and so many people introduced themselves as just a classroom teacher. Yeah. And there is, there is nothing just about it. Classroom teachers are the bedrock of our education system and we need to hold them in high regard. So thanks so much for that. Um, Catherine, can I come to you? What one thing in, in education, what one change, if you could, sorry, I'll say that again. If you could change this one thing in education, what would it be? So I thought about this question prior to the um, podcast and then listening to Sarah's fantastic answer and then obviously you're giving further insights from previous interviews, it's really difficult. I can't dispute, you know, in terms of what Sarah's just said about um, how the profession is viewed and career pathways that develop expertise in the classroom so that people don't feel that they have to leave. I think to just be um, very flexible then a different perspective I'm going to go back to school leadership I think for too long leaders have been bashed for uh, a very small minority of um, leaders who have perhaps not acted or honorably because of external pressures and high stakes accountability I do believe that in those cases it's been more about leaders feeling trapped and feeling that they have so many external pressures on them that perhaps they haven't acted honorably okay so I'm not making excuses for that and I've been in schools where I've seen it firsthand and experienced it myself so I know what I do genuinely say this from a place of understanding but I also know that the vast majority of leaders are absolutely doing all they can to serve their colleagues and serve their communities. And so if I could really change one thing, it would be not leaders on one side and school teachers on the other, but really make sure that we talk about all of us, one team, one mission. We might have different roles within that mission, but essentially we are one unified uh, group of people. So that's what I would change. Right. Thank you so much. What a, what a way to, to end. We are, we're all one unified group of people marching together. It's such a beautiful way to end. So thank you so much. Um, so that brings us to the end. Um, Sarah and Catherine, can I, can I thank you so, so much for giving up so much of your time to, to chat with me tonight about such a wonderful, wonderful topic. I've learned a lot from it. I've taken pages of notes and I'm sure the listeners will take a lot from it as well. So thank you so much. Thanks. thanks for being so open to, to kind of hearing from us today and also a big thanks to Catherine who who like tackles the, the difficult things head on and is not afraid to kind of be vulnerable and, and say what she thinks so that's that's really inspiring to me. Well, this, that's very kind of you to say this would be a podcast I listen back to and think right well I haven't I haven't nailed that aspect <laughs> <laughs> but you know what folks isn't that the messiness of learning and I was actually going to say what an honor it is always to be alongside um Sarah because she hasn't gone into enough detail tonight about her neuroscience masters and the fact that she had to do additional learning and additional credits just to be able to get onto this masters she is a real talent in our education sector and I'm very excited um to hear that she'll be sharing some blogs uh, about her her learning because um you know it's always a privilege to work with her Certainly. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educate. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, 
Why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.